Welcome to this episode of the Barely Lawyers Podcast. Barely Lawyers, eh? <laughs> Welcome to this episode of the Barely Lawyers Podcast. My name's Aiden Sabayapur. I'm Sahan Mikir. I'm Tayshan Dwyer. And we're joined here today by Ajay Ayurende. What's good, guys? So to kick things off, could you give us a bit of a um, background to tell us a bit about your journey from university and, and the route you took until now? Yeah, sure. So um, went to Queen Mary University, studied straight law. Um, two years in, I was fortunate enough to get a training contract offer from a firm called Norton Rose Fulbright. Um, finished my degree, went on to law school where I did the accelerated LPC. Um, did two year training contract in Norton Rose. Um, whilst I was there, was fortunate enough to do two secondments. So I did six months in the Johannesburg office, which was great. And also six months um, at Goldman Sachs as well. Then um, on qualification, um, decided to specialize in derivatives. So I went to a firm called Ashurst, which were very good at derivatives. Um, spent a year or so there. Um, along the way, um, kind of really started to push my two businesses. Um, so a clothing brand called MIA London and a startup called MIA Marketplace, which is essentially a marketplace that allows um, festival organizers and brands to have assistance with sourcing and booking local creative talent in Africa. One thing I was particularly interested in is that typically with law students or people approaching the legal careers that, as I said to you earlier, there's a distinction between private practice or in-house. Whereas for me, when I look at you from an outsider's perspective, is that you had a very organic, flexible approach to your legal career. Mm. So when you're making these, these, these decisions, i.e. one to go to private practice, then you mm. said you want to work on a more freelance basis, then you had your two projects on the side with MIA London yeah. and MIA Marketplace. What, what was going in your head when you were making these decisions? Was there a blueprint or was it more... Um, or was it more flexible, more organic? Yeah, so I think for me, I had like a kind of rough timeline in my head of how I wanted this stuff to play out. I think going in, I had this vision of it being like five to eight years before I kind of branched out and started to do like, um, you know, consultant type stuff. It would have to be um, at a point where I felt that I could no longer balance the two. And I felt that if I continued having those two things running concurrently, then one would suffer. So um, fortunately enough, about six to nine months in um, to my time um, as an associate, an opportunity arose to join the first ever cohort of this new master's course at Cambridge in entrepreneurship. Um, the reason why that course was attractive to me or beneficial to me was because the timeline of the course, it's a part-time course, kind of mirrors the timeline of a business. So at this point in time, MIA Marketplace was no more than just an idea, really, but it was an idea that because of conversations I'd had, potential advisors I had in place, potential co-founders, I knew it had some legs. I just wanted to make sure that it had enough legs for a business school like Cambridge to see some value in it. So once I got into that course, for me, that was like the um, impetus I needed um, and at the same time as well, I feel like when you're kind of stepping out of a career that is as respected as the law, you have to do something that would also be respected by the space that you're leaving. Right. And that was the main reason why I went for Cambridge, if I'm being honest. Like, 
If I was going to Birkbeck or something, no shade. Like, my, <laughs> they wouldn't have got it. Do you know what I mean? I was like, okay, if I go to like Ashurst and I'm like, I'm leaving to go to Cambridge to do this master's course, they'll be like, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Which is exactly what happened. Um, and it kind of makes it seem like it's been a well thought out decision. It's not just something that you're making um, in, in a rash way. So, yeah, that was kind of like the impetus I needed. Um, and also what that meant for me is that I knew that there would be a period of time where I would be more heavily reliant on my legal stuff even once I'd left. So I wanted to make sure I had enough experience that I could, even though I'm doing like high level commercial stuff for startups that's quite low risk, I needed enough experience to give me some credibility in that space. Um, and I felt that the two years training and one year doing like very intense finance work would kind of give me that. And now it's been like 18 months since then. And in this space, it's not that complex. So I've kind of become a bit of a specialist. Um, so I'm now in the process of even like transitioning away from doing freelance stuff through law firms to kind of doing it fully on my own and like setting up my own um, practice. Um, so yeah, there's definitely scope to kind of forge your own career path even whilst continuing to do law. And even if you're planning on doing law and doing other things at the same time. So I had a question about um, the application and the route in. Um, I'd imagine a lot of people listening to the podcast will be in the early stage applications um, sort of thing. And it's clear that you had these projects that you're thinking about and you're working on. Um, when you're applying to firms, do you feel that you need to suppress these ideas and these desires that you have to, to basically convince them that you're there for the long haul? Or do they like to hear about the fact that you're enterprising and you have this sort of mindset? Or what was the challenge over there? Yeah, so I think going back to second year of uni, I'd done a few kind of entrepreneurial creative things, but none of them were, none of the things I was doing were like developed enough for me to be like creatively distracted is how I refer to it as. Right. So um, the stuff I'd done up until that point, all it did was kind of, I think, make me more attractive candidate. Um, so for example, first year of uni, I did a lot of um, like ticket selling and club promotion work. and. I basically funded all my like first year living expenses from that. So going into my Norton Rose interview, like they wanted to know about that, um, how there may be transferable skills from that that could be relevant as a lawyer. Right. So kind of going in, I was able to talk about how going out and building a client base, building a contact base is the same thing that partners would do in a law firm, which to them was, I think, quite a good response. So that's how things were then at that time. As things kind of moved on, I think it's definitely true about what you say. It's not even necessarily about suppressing things you're doing. It's about knowing, having to know where your priorities lie. Like, of course, I, I really like valued the stuff I was doing with MIA and so on and so forth, but I knew that work always had to come first. So unless they were gonna like ask me about that in interview, I wasn't going to go in and start making that my focus because then I'll just seem distracted. So kind of once I was in from Norton Roos, I didn't have another interview until I was applying for Ashurst. And at this point, again, my thing was, um, I'm not going to leave something out completely because 
then you know if it comes out then it's it just gets a little bit more messy or like political but i did leave it on my application but um i just kind of spun it or explained it in a way that i could show how the contacts and stuff that i was managing to build in africa by doing this stuff with MIA may benefit the firm who was at the time looking to build the african practice anyway and for a period of time um me having that other stuff that i was doing did seem quite attractive to the firm so like the firm would like promote like oh actually's doing this actually does that i just does that and it was only when it started to get to the point where i was like okay this thing is starting to like move forward a bit too much and cool. it's starting to look a little bit like i might be spending too much time doing here then i was like okay i need to start to like tone this down a little <laughs> bit <laughs> um point. yeah yeah and luckily that tipping point was running in conjunction with me noticing this myself and applying for Cambridge. So I was like, you know what? Before this stuff gets gets messy, let me just. So yeah, I'm very interested in it as well because you said um, you said there's a tipping point. Mm. Then, then you also spoke about then you, you said there's a tipping point. Mm. Then you said, okay, cool, let me apply for Cambridge, etc. Yeah. But then it was also you also alluded to earlier. The idea that when you leave private, private practice, you have mm. to sort of justify it. Not justify it, but yeah. the, the profession you're leaving, ha- your step needs to make sense to them as well. Yeah, yeah. So I was interested, whilst you're balancing all these ideas and mm. all these uh, conflicting perspectives, were there any other influences in your life, maybe your parents mm, or mm. your peers, and you felt like you had to maybe appease them or they gave you really valid input yeah. whilst making these decisions or even relationships, etc. romantic relationships, any of these things impact that? decision process was it purely individual what did you want to do no no so it's definitely what you said so the parents were one big element to it i had to like pretty much in a similar way to having to i guess persuade um my law firm i also had to persuade my parents but with them it was a little bit different in the sense that you wouldn't need that continued backing it wasn't just a case of explaining it in such a way that they get it. It's a, it's a case of explaining it in such a way that they get it and they continue to actually back what you're doing. So I had a lot of conversations with my parents about that. Um, like my girlfriend, like she helped a lot in terms of just like helping me to get to the point in which I kind of understood it. Um, understood like the, the route I was taking and the implications and so on and so forth. And that at the point in which I was actually able to make that jump I could justify it in a way that made sense to all these different people that feel like they need to know um, I don't think you can really make these decisions completely on your own or in isolation unless unless you have a concrete plan B if that makes sense yeah, if you're still kind of creating a new blueprint for yourself you're still going to need the support of other people along the way so now I'm, I'm I'm back in London but for like pretty much a year I was like living with my parents in Leicester so I'd have um, meetings in London all the time I was basically spent a year in like Airbnb staying with aunties and uncles staying with friends like couch surfing etc etc like to go from like nice swanky Canary Wharf apartment to like that that's be nice yeah, it's like you you need to have the support of people around you for that. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Um, 
And like, thankfully now things are starting to like, you know, work out. But I needed that year where I had like a proper support network around me to, to make that stuff properly work. And that would have been a lot more difficult if I was doing that completely on my own. So, yeah, I think that's, that's just the, the um, territory that comes with having committed to like any sort of route that other people um, really, really respect or rate. To them, may not necessarily understand why you want why you'd want to leave that behind. Um, so, yeah, like even as far as like explaining it to like social media and stuff, I felt like I had to like explain it in such a way that it was like justified or could be justified to like other people that objectively may seem like they don't need to know, but they feel like they deserve yeah. some sort of explanation. I think as an as like a general point, this is like open up to whoever's around the table. It's like with social media, one is the it's a social platform to show your best life, slightly show off. But then there's also a marketplace for you, you yourself. As you said, you do a lot of freelancing, so mm. people look at you vicariously and people want to get in or collaborate with you. So mm. it's also trying to get that balance of looking cool, also being professional, slash not exposing yourself too much as well, which is a very fine balance. I think we all need to um, try and try and work out. So one interesting point based on who you are now as some sort of legal creative. Do you feel having a legal understanding helps you or strengthens you as a creative? Because I know a lot of creatives are almost dumbed down and they're almost robbed of their rights. So do you think it gives you an interesting outlook and almost humanizes you to those people to help your growing portfolio? Definitely. I feel like um, it doesn't just like humanize me, it like humanizes the profession as well within those spaces or within those contexts like um, there's a lot of people who I'm able to help just with like a very small amount of like my wider knowledge Um, and just by giving like one or two tips that or advice not advice um, but you know like general generic feedback or whatever um, that may make a huge difference in whatever they're doing but doesn't really take too much time away from me. I think aside from that as well, when it comes to advising startups and like convincing them that you know it's worth paying for your services at such a stage where they may not necessarily want to prioritize things like legals, having that corporate background adds a lot of credibility. Um, it kind of reassures people that it's worth finding whatever budget they need to find to to get the proper kind of advice they need and not just like download something online and then leave themselves exposed. Um, but at the same time as well, being a product of like those two different spaces means that I kind of also understand them as well. So even my approach to, you know, um, making suggestions to them is more kind of measured. It's not like a very um, like hard-headed corporate capitalist approach it's like okay your budget is this if you're going to download anything get it from this place do as much as you can there and then come back to me or come back to like someone else in this particular space and then we'll see what we can do so I'm not like just trying to go out there and um, you know kind of you know uh, take that kind of same approach that maybe that corporates would take Um, and for me that kind of is more in line with like my values, it's more in line with the way that I kind of want to do law. 
um, it kind of means that I can add value and have like more impact than I would have if I was like one small part of this like huge organization that is only really helping these huge investment banks, which is kind of what I was doing before. So do you think your own unique challenges with MIA have affected how you deliver legal advice? So I saw, I saw some time ago how, I think it was Boohoo and mm -hmm. MIA London. So in terms of going through a challenge like that, where you felt that your intellectual property has been infringed, mm -hmm. do you think that helps you um, in terms of when you were in a law firm, you were delivering legal advice from a big entity. Mm -hmm. So you were Goliath against David in that sense, but mm -hmm. now you're David against Goliath. So how do you feel going against challenges and fighting for your rights and the justice, which is the law and the fu fundamental principles you learn about? I can't lie, it's, it's a bit long. Like, uh, it's, <laughs> That's a good question. It's, it's very long. Like, I spend most of my time just in general as like a entrepreneur, freelancer, whatever, just chasing invoices. Mm -hmm. And like, if like the law was just straightforward in in practice or in reality, you just take everyone to court. But that's not how it works. Like, this stuff is all based on relationships. Mm -hmm. It's like you said, based on relative bargaining power. If you're like fortunate enough to like work with someone that's bigger than you, or even to come across someone that's bigger than you, um, you gotta think more carefully about how you want to navigate whatever kind of um, dispute or um, conflict or whatever might be happening and how that could then impact not only your relationship with that particular counterparty but also your reputation within the industry um, so that's why I don't know I mean it's 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 kind of like useful to be able to like know okay if push comes to shove I could go down that way and know how to handle it but at the same time I'm able to like look at the reality of the situation and then find some sort of like middle ground or approach that um, kind of like can mitigate that or like pacify that. I was going to jump, do you, do you want um, to? To be honest, it's, in, it's interesting because I feel like fashion is something that isn't put in a box in so many different ways, whether it be a business side or creative expression. Mm. So, well, I'm just, I think, I think it's interesting that we celebrate your highs. Like, I remember seeing something you gave some something to Prince Charles, was it? Yeah, yeah. So how did that come about? Yeah, so... And did that kind of cement your route and what you were doing and reassure you that you're doing something good? Yeah, so I mean, what's, what's like interesting about this kind of space is that there have been, like you said, certain events or certain things along the way that have kind of like reassured me or reaffirm that what I'm doing is what I'm supposed to be doing or that I'm on the right kind of track. Of course, there'll be times where you're thinking, am I doing the right thing? Meanwhile, you've got like legal recruiters in your DMs and emails saying, oh, come, there's this 150K salary. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Meanwhile, you're there like struggling, like chasing invoices. And the funny thing is, it's always when you're like at the breaking point, that's when something will happen. Like you get an email or like a message like, oh, um, there's this reception at Buckingham Palace and it's like, oh, okay, maybe I'm doing the right kind of thing or, oh, um, let's speak about this, let's have this sort of meeting or, oh, we're styling this person, we want to use your stuff for this particular thing. So these things will happen at always like the 
the final moment. Um, in terms of how that kind of came about, um, this is why it's so important to just like try and like be good to people along the way because you just never know like when they may want to put you on or they may want to like recommend you to someone or mention your name in the in certain places. So someone I went to uni with, um, who I did the ACS with, like she was. I don't know if she's still working there now, but she was working at the Foreign Commonwealth Office and they were arranging this reception um, where they were just like inviting a few different people from the like Nigerian and Ghanaian diasporas who were doing things in the creative industries. And she is the one who like recommended that, oh, this person will be a good person to include on the invite list. So when I saw this like, invite in the post I was like okay I need to figure out who actually sent this or who who made this happen because this is not just like random but the very fact that she was willing or happy to like put the, the palace onto us just goes to show like I said that it's so important that you make your mark and you're good to people along the way because you just never know um, and yeah like I think for us it's just about trying to make the most of those opportunities um, just constantly like chipping away, not kind of expecting anything to like necessarily change your destiny, but it all kind of plays a part. So the Prince Charles thing, what it kind of did is it kind of opened a few doors. Um, even in that room, we met a few people um, who were, you know, I kind of like networked with. That's one skill that is completely universal. Like the networking that they drill into you, that, you know, getting into law you, you need that applies in kind of all industries. And I feel like that is one thing that's kind of helped me um, stand out from other creatives. That networking for me is like very natural. Um, whereas some of my other, some of my peers are like having to learn that as they go along. Um, so yeah, I think just to kind of sum up on that particular question, just being good to people along the way. Um, knowing that there's going to be certain things that happen that kind of reassure you that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and just making the most of those opportunities when they do happen. When you discuss about networking and meeting people in this in the new um, industry of, of fashion and creative, um, would you mention your uh, experience in law and that sort of stuff? Because I can imagine in that world it would be something that will set you apart and maybe you can benefit from the reputation or they would think, oh, if this guy left a, a comfortable law job to do this, this must be a serious thing that he believes in, or do you just, would you not bring that up? Funnily enough, now, not as much. Right. I think now we kind of want the work to kind of speak for itself. Sure. Um, I think me, me as like a, a lawyer, because I'm, I'm still practicing now technically, um, because I wear a few different hats, I kind of present myself differently to different people. So um, there may be opportunities or times where that stuff does come up and then there might be times that people come to you purely based on whatever you have to offer um, on the fashion side of things or on creativity side of things. And that's what they're interested in. They're not really interested in anything else. But sometimes having that context can mean that even if they're not interested in what you, in the law side of things, they may know someone that um, 
that maybe need something or may come to you for that particular thing. So I just kind of like generally present myself as just as, as I am, um, kind of like take note of the context, take note of like the um, circumstances in which I meet that person, whether it's like, if it's a fashion event, then I'll make it about fashion. If it's like something else, I might make it about that. But yeah, to kind of sum up, like I'm not, I don't really use that as like a thing, as a selling point. I, I'm, maybe I used to, but now we're more focused on the work speaking for right. itself. Because more established now, you've got the, yeah, the yeah. work to point to and say, this is what we do. Exactly. And then that means that the Lord just becomes something that is a unique part of my story, something additional. Um, and it just kind of adds another layer of like um, intrigue. Yeah. Um, so um, you spoke pre- you spoke just then about um, you wanting your product to be standalone yeah. rather than relying upon your legal background. Mm. And one one thing I've seen a lot in the creators, especially online and social media, Twitter, yeah. etc., is that you see a lot of collaborations where people mm. can mm. pull pull each other's client pools, have a wider audience, and um, Combine different ideas, etc. Yeah. So now you, with your product being a standard and then moving forward, mm. what's your particular approach to collaboration? I.e., the pros and the cons, and like, do, is there certain things you just wouldn't do? Do you, mm-hmm. do you feel like overexposed sometimes, etc.? Yeah. So as far as collaboration goes, I think as you kind of develop as a brand, um, the caliber of people that you collaborate with um, kind of improves, but also like your value and your worth also increases so whereas when you first start it's more about getting your name out there you may need to like you know put in more to have a more established brand want to even work with you or collaborate with you or like to get a particular model because your brands don't necessarily align at that point in time now we're at a point where we're all about like risk sharing it's like if you really see the value in our brand then you'll want to share some of the risk yourself um what i mean by that is a lot of the collaborations we do um it won't involve us like you know having to like pay someone to like work with us we don't really want to do that anymore it's more a case of okay let's work out a percentage let's work out kind of what makes sense for the two brands based on the fact that we're now coming together as like equals or like closer to equals so that's kind of like our focus now um we don't want to kind of go into any sort of collaboration where we've come out like worse than the others we want to kind of win together if that makes sense what i find you find interesting with um collaboration as i said i'm not a creative i find podcasting very creative but nothing in terms of creating art or whatever is um one you know you said you spoke about have an open percentage, maybe revenue, mm. or whatever. It's how do you find that that split? Is it maybe client pool? Is it following? Is it outreach? Is it market? Because that's a very it's a very important thing you need to get right. Mm. Like how do you find that line? Or does it vary case by case business? It it varies definitely um, from case to case. Um, I think it also depends on kind of what what it is that you have to offer in that particular space that 
the collaborative brand or collaborative brands are trying to get into. So we've not been in this position yet, but let's say you had like, um, I don't know, like Adidas trying to get into a very specific market or community that only we have access to, or we have better access to. Even the Adidas are like all the way up here, they're gonna have to like pay a certain amount or you know, share a certain way to get access there that they won't necessarily get otherwise. To give an example, um, I did some work with Blue Story Movie, like some street work, um, some community-based work with the Blue Story Movie. And Paramount Pictures brought on board this specialist marketing agency called Kinde London to tap into um, the like London communities that they didn't necessarily have immediate access to, if that makes sense. I don't know what the split was or how they kind of agreed things, but if Paramount just kind of came in, they, because they're so big, they may not necessarily have the same kind of on the ground access to that particular community or space. So in that particular situation, despite that marketing company being smaller, they have more to offer. So their value, what they have to bring to the table is is great, greater than um, it would be otherwise. In terms of leveraging, um, well, you're from African diaspora, so leveraging who you are to get a closer on the ground picture. So I've seen you were, um, with their Afro-Nation, how did you guys have an impact at Afro-Nation? How did your entity or personality get yeah. involved there? So that's, that's a good um, point. So that is, Afro-Nation was um, like the biggest kind of client that MIA Marketplace has had so far. Um, kind of what we did for them was um, they, they booked like their entire kind of social media content creation team through us so we helped to like source and curate a team of like local creatives that we we were able to like build from like our own kind of pool our own kind of connections and our own kind of you know platform um and kind of presented it to Afronation. um and then we agreed on you know a price for like booking these people and they kind of got there through us so that i think is an example of I guess a smaller business having value to a, a bigger business, so to speak. I mean, Afronation could have gone out there and tried to find those people themselves, but um, we already have those connections. We're like, kind of, some of our team is like based on the ground. We have like talent scouts and so on and so forth. So that was the kind of value that we were then able to bring to the table um, in a way that would benefit Afronation. That's like what we're basically looking to offer, essentially. Like just kind of that on the ground access that they wouldn't necessarily be able to get or to be able to get as easily. So so from the podcast, one thing which, which I've been trying to tease out, which we've been trying to tease out is the chasm between the top corporate world, i.e. Goliath, versus those who work in the creative, creative space who have a connection to those who really understand the community or really understand the culture mm. you have a brand to offer yeah yeah so I think um, I've not really touched upon this um, as much but I feel like that is probably one of the things that kind of like ties all the things that I do together so like that kind of like on the ground social impact so whether it's um, MIA London kind of helping to put on um, other tailors and designers that we collaborate with 
um, whether it's MIA Marketplace, um, helping to put on like other local freelance creatives, or whether it's the Law Collective, which I've not mentioned, which is um, an organization that I co-chair, which um, helps to get you know, black students into the law. We're at a point now where we have kind of a community, which you're part of, like 300 black African Caribbean lawyers, about 1,600 students. So we have law firms come to us all the time um, trying to get access to that and even like recruitment firms. So what kind of ties those all together is that kind of like on the ground um, impact. So that's actually one piece of advice that I'd give to anybody that's looking to start a business or whatever. If you can build a community around yourself or whatever you're doing, then over time, that in itself will have value and will then make you attractive to um, others that may want to collaborate with you. So we've heard that what you're doing with MIA London and your um, different entrepreneurship projects, what are the next steps that you see in the coming uh, year or so that you think that they'll be taking? Yeah, so with um, MIA London, like it's kind of like we're just really focusing on solidifying the brand identity this year and also just kind of getting things fully sustainable. So we've had like pockets of success around things like the Prince Charles thing and so on and so forth. But we're looking to move away from relying on those pockets of success more towards just continued sustainability. Um, and one of the ways in which we're doing that is you know, me and myself, I'm like upskilling myself further. So doing a few like design courses and so on and so forth, um, just so I can like work alongside the tailors and other designers that we're um, we're working with um, and then we're kind of like minimizing the number of projects that we're taking on um, and all focusing on so we're supposed to be doing a New York Fashion Week show in September which was postponed from last year um, but we feel like we're a lot more ready to do it this time around then with MI Marketplace um, kind of like main goal for my co-founders and I's um, by the end of the year for it to be able to pay at least two of us a salary, whether from clients or from raising investment. Um, and then aside from that, I think sometimes the consequence of creative stuff becoming more business focused is you kind of like lose that creativity. So um, I'm just like taking on like more, you know, creative director projects outside of like MIA and stuff for like other brands and so on and so forth. Um, just to kind of like keep myself um, fully inspired. Um, legal stuff as well, kind of taking stuff like more into my own hands. Now that I'm at a point where I've kind of got those connections that I experience within the startup and creative space. And yeah, apart from that, just like continuing to, you know, push everything else forward and just enjoying the journey as I and if someone wants to if the listeners want to follow what the updates are on MIA London and MIA Marketplace where can they find you yeah so MIA London socials um, M-I-A-X-L-D-N on all social media platforms um, my personal um, Ajibola Josiah on everything so H-A-I-B-O-L-A J-O-S-I-A-H um MI Marketplace, so the tech platform that we've been working on is called Aburu, which is spelled U-B-U-U-R-U. -U -U -U. 
So follow that on Instagram and Twitter. It's um, quiet at the moment, but we will be posting some content. Um, and yeah, if you have any other questions, um, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn as well. Actually, your own day. Perfect. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Um, personally, I've learned a lot from uh, hearing about the challenges you faced while moving from law and taking on this entrepreneurship uh, journey. I'm sure there's a lot of other listeners as well who might be thinking about careers that span beyond law and things like that. So it's been really good to, to listen to the challenges and, and it's been really great to have you on. So thanks for coming and giving your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. We did A message to the listeners. We've not been able to record at the at this, um, regular, regular place. So if you had to hear any background noise or anything... Uh, we apologise for that and yeah we'll catch you on the next episode <laughs> you know what now we'll edit that don't even worry yeah, about that yeah, sometimes it's during when we're talking but, but.